downloads of this show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, January 15th, 2019. Yep, the rest of the year is in front of us. It's a blank slate, a tabula rasa. Any of our dreams can come true. Today, tomorrow, the next day, we don't know. And that reminds me of this song, another one from my well-spent youth. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Tomorrow's Dream by the one, the only, Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne. It's from their Volume 4 album that came out in 1972. And when I tell you, you do not know what hearing this song did to my little 12-year-old brain, well, maybe you do. And if you do know, you probably can surmise that It made me partially what I am today. (laughs) Our guest artist this week also has a similar opinion. We'll get to that later. But we want to have our next song be one that our guest artist this week picked to open their episode. Clues are here 
for those who have ears. was another one and only kids, the countdown music from the classic TV game show Jeopardy. It's called Think, and it was written by 20th century media mogul and TV game show host and creator Merv Griffin, reportedly originally as a lullaby for his son Tony. Now, you might be wondering what the Jeopardy game show and our guest artists this week have in common. Hmm... Well, wait no longer, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! We have an import artist here today. Sitting with me now is a writer, a host, a storyteller, a stand up comedian, and a Jeopardy winner. Let's welcome Wes Hazard. All right. Hi, Michelle. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's been it's great. I was so happy to get you. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I always ask this of everybody when we begin our chat how and where did we meet? And I thought that it was at WGBH with Stories from the Stage because you host there with Mass Mouth and you also interviewed people for the, the TV version. Mm-hmm. But you told me before we went on the air that um, we met before that. Yeah, uh, also through Mass Mouth, but probably it would have been about two, two and a half years, summer of 2015. We did an improv in um, Stories to Scene show. Oh! And JP in uh, Boston. So, With yeah. HR Britain. Exactly. Yes, yeah. we're my buddy HR. Oh my God! Yeah. So that's a show where uh, storytellers go up and they tell, you know, a five, seven minute slam story, and then an improv team watches them and does an improv scene based on what they just uh, heard. And uh, we were on that show. We talked very little. I think we probably just shook hands, like, hey, how are you? Um, but yeah, that was the first time that uh, we ever met. Wow, the JP show. That was a really good show. H.R. Britton is a storyteller that um, was very active in New York with the moth, and he moved up to Boston and became the Nora Dooley's right hand at Mass Mouth. Nora Dooley was running Mass Mouth at the time, and then he moved back to the Midwest. He's, uh, I think he's in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. Still, yeah, still doing stories right. there. Yeah, he's still very much telling yeah. and yeah, so... Big shout out. That, that. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, we, we had met twice before we really wow. met. <laughs> you have a good memory. I don't know. It's all a blur sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you do a million shows. I mean, like, that's the thing. I mean, uh, I probably w- might not have remembered that had we not then had a really in-depth conversation and, you know, at Stories from the Stage months later. But, you know, as, as a performer, you know, I meet 
10 people in a week and yeah. if I remember one of them that's a miracle just because I, I will largely never see many of them again so yes. it's just like yeah it's no. the truth it's be a shame though it's the nature of the beast of uh, the performer performer problem that's what it is it's hashtag <laughs> performer problems exactly <laughs> Are you from the East Coast originally? Yes, I am. I'm from the. I was born in uh, Boston, and then I grew up in a um, suburb of Boston called Stoughton. I went to Stoughton High School the whole bit, and then uh, yeah, I've been in uh, Boston uh, ever since then, up until pretty recently. Oh wow! So, um, are you? Is your family? Um, yeah. Did you come from an immigrant family, or your family been here for a while? Uh, they've been here for a while. So um, yeah, my parents. You know, um, it was weird growing up because I had sort of best of both worlds in that my parents were divorced um, uh, before I can remember, so I don't ever remember being them together, but, uh, and I live with my mom, and I'm her only kid. So in one sense, uh, during the week, I was an only child living out in the suburbs. Uh, but my dad had, um, you know, a, a lot of different kids, my half-brothers and sisters, and so he would come pick me up on the weekends, and I'd stay in uh, Dorchester, right, you know, right in the heart of Boston, and um, would see them and hang out with them. So in the weekday, it's only child suburbs on the weekend. It's one of like five in you know the middle of the Boston. So it was kind wow. Of, yeah, that is kind <laughs> of cool because then you have all this like activity and, and togetherness, and then when you want to be alone, you're alone. Exactly. Yeah, I've always considered myself very much an introvert. So like you know, I, I loved being an only child and all you know, and I was spoiled and all that sort of stuff, which was nice. But you know, it's great you know having brothers and sisters and that shared history and yeah, just being able to see. The city, which, you know, a lot of my friends back home just weren't getting to do. Are you the only creative one in your family? Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm the only creative. I'm the only one who has tried to pursue it professionally and, like, really gone after it. Mm. Uh, my mom, uh, you know, she was a manager for uh, the phone company all through my youth. And, you know, she wrote poetry um, uh, back in high school. I read some of it. It was actually, you know, very, very good. She's written, she writes a little bit now. She does some painting. But um, she was just in a situation where, you know, she had a baby and had to, you know, pay the bills. And so she had a, you know, did well for herself in the corporate world. But, like, yeah, in terms of, you know, going after it, definitely the only one that I'm aware of. So you're the resident weirdo of your family. Uh, <laughs> I'm the resident creative in the professional sense. Uh, there are, are a lot of weirdos in my family uh, for various reasons, and uh, I can hardly lay claim to that title alone. And I can't wait for them to listen to this and find that out. Yeah. So how did your creativity express itself when you were very young? Were you the kind of kid that ran around singing? Did you have imaginary worlds? Did you write stories? Did you make plays? Did you have stuff... It was uh, definitely um, uh, imagination-focused. Like, it's not the kind of thing that a kid is generally going to manifest. Like, if you're really good at drawing or music, a kid can show you that talent and, like, oh, let's put him in class or whatever like that. You know, for sometimes who's, someone who's going to be a storyteller or a comedian, it's just like, this kid talks a lot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this kid really wants to, like, you know, be the center of attention. So um, I was definitely lived in intense, intense fantasy world. Uh, I'm an only child. I started reading very early and I loved to read. Um, you know, I was sort of easy on my mom in that way in the sense that like I wasn't quote a bad kid. Like, you know, every kid, you know, gets in a little mischief here and there. But like I was not trying to cause trouble. Like, you know, she could leave me alone with a book and go in the other room and like I'm come back four hours later, he's still here and no nothing's broken. So um that was good. And then also um I spent an incredible amount of time alone from uh fifth grade on. Um I would go to school and then um, come home and then I would um, just, you know, have three, four, five hours before my mom came home. 
so I had, an, you know, you're talking about an 11, 12-year-old who has an entire house to himself, two floors uh, in the suburbs, you know, and I would just, you know, do act-outs. I would watch TV and comment back about what, what I'm seeing, you know, talk to the TV. I never had, like, imaginary friends or anything like that, but definitely a very rich inner life, which was enhanced by a lot of movies and a lot of books, which I'm thankful for. Did you see yourself being on the other side of the TV screen when you were a kid? You know, I can't say that I thought about being a performer then, um, but I definitely was very into... I, I digested a lot of media. So we had, um, you know, we all, for as long as I can remember, we had all the channels, all cable, and I had no supervision and pretty much no bedtime. Uh, or if I did, I would just wait till my mom uh, went to bed. So I was watching, like, you know, HBO and Cinemax and Showtime and documentaries and just reading. I was reading above, you know, my grade level. So I was, like, just exposed to a lot of stuff that a lot of kids wouldn't see. I remember, I think I watched... Pulp Fiction when I was in sixth grade at midnight and like I, I heard about it like oh what's this and like and then we're watching it and like I was not the same when that movie was over so like you know it was a very a lot of that sort of thing we're just like being exposed to um, adult stuff and just rolling with it and be like okay well this is art and now I'm watching it you know. That's the classic American childhood, watching the movie that it's inappropriate for you to watch. <laughs> so um, was your imagination encouraged as a child she must have loved that you were reading because all moms love when their kids read she yeah i mean it it certainly wasn't stifled i mean my mom was always very much um all about education all about like you know i want you to learn i want you to succeed um you know she's like you know she might shut me down on a toy or a video game but she i remember her explicitly saying you can ask me for a book anytime i'll get you the book um, so, you know, it, it was, that was definitely encouraged, but my mom was great in that she just wanted to throw a bunch of the, the stuff against the wall and see what stuck. So you're like, let's put him in soccer. He hates soccer. Okay. We're only going to do that this one season. Let's try basketball. All right. This kid probably is not going to be good at sports. Let's try trumpet. He's not good at that, but like, okay, he's into karate. He's into reading a lot. Like, you know, he likes, you know, sci-fi club. I'll come pick him up from school so he can go do that. You know, so she was really great in sort of just letting me be me, um, like, there is a directive, you you will obey me, and you will succeed. How that happens, you know, is really up to you and your talents, but I'm here to make that happen. And she was That's great. That. That's yeah. really great that you were encouraged in that way. How did your creativity have an outlet when you when you were in your young years in school? Did, were you, like, part of, were you a drama club kid? It was a very long time before I, I thought that I would ever want to do anything creatively, um, but the where I was really helped in that was that I was digesting all that stuff. So I didn't do stand-up comedy until college. Uh, I arrived on campus, had no idea that I would ever hold a mic. So what college did you go to? I went to uh, Boston College. Okay. So yeah, so I'll give you the quick rundown of high school. You know, I was a very good student, uh, honor society, all that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, I was always horrible in um, math, like I, since pre-algebra, just no good, but, you know, excelled in history and social sciences, English, all that sort of stuff. And I left for college thinking that I wanted to be a U.S. senator. Like, that was really, like, what I for wanted. Real? <laughs> that was, like, what wow. I, I was like, I'm going to go to Boston College, and I'm either going to go to Boston College Law or Harvard Law. I'm going to, you know, work my way in the firm for a little while, become a U.S. rep, do, you know, shake some hands, then go become a senator and, and do all that. And, like, I enrolled at Boston College for political science, uh, my first year in, and um, that's what I thought I was going to do. Why? And why? Why did you want to be a senator? And why a senator? <laughs> why not president? <laughs> that might have been coming later. I, th- I, thought, I think senator. I thought maybe might be a little bit more attainable. But why was 
Uh, I've always loved trivia and history, and one of the things you know that I'd always been interested in specifically was politics and the presidents. So I remember I got this book about the U.S. presidents when I was a kid, and I would pour over it, remembering all these facts, like you know, William Henry Harrison was Benjamin Harrison's grandfather, and it's the only grandfather grandson team in uh, all of U.S. presidency. And William Henry Harrison was the shortest serving president. And, you know, all this stuff. I would just soak that up. And, you know, got really into a track where I was super, super into the presidency as an institution, which is the most nerdy thing of all time, but whatever. And I went to school, and I was like, we're going to do this. And then I just realized, like, I got a little bit involved in student government and ran for some stuff. And I'm like, I don't like people enough to, to do that, to glad hand and, like, be, like, <laughs> on all the time and, like, you know, shake hands and kiss babies. Like, I realized very quickly that that is essential. And I also realized, like, I am way too much of an introvert. I do not, like just crowds and you know no way uh at the same time uh throughout that year i got uh more and more into movies um I, i'd always been a film a film guy i'd watched more movies than any of my friends like you know again just because we had all the channels and everything like that but i got really into it and this was um netflix uh, had just come out recently and it was still you would get dvds in the mail and the standard thing was you pay like uh 20 a month and you get three D- dvds at a time and I just went way past that and got paid like 40 and got the eight at a time. And so I had a, a rotation of eight DVDs um, going constantly. I would watch a movie like pretty much every night. I'd go to the cinema probably like three times in a weekend. And I, by the end of the year, I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to study film. And I told my mom, like, you know, I love film. I love movies. I want to study. I want to be a director maybe one day. And she's like... I'm not paying for that. You're going, you know, like you can get a, dumb, a major if you want to, but you're going to continue studying political science. And I ended up double majoring in uh, film and poli sci. Wow! And how fortunate that Boston College had both. Yeah, Boston College. I mean, they did have a film program, but it's not like an LA film school. Like it's very research uh, oriented. So, you know, there were production classes, but you're going to be much more prepared coming out of that program to write a book about you know, French cinema mm. than you are to actually direct the movie. Right. Exactly. So what got you into stand-up? How did you discover it? It was a stroke of luck. This was, I went into school in September 2002, this, uh, and um, for freshman orientation, you had a freshman class of about 2,200 kids. Uh, BC's, you know, got a little money, and they want to do a little, you know, a week of festivities when the school uh, year opens. So Dave Chappelle came to campus to, you know, do a stand-up concert. Nice. And this is a year before Chappelle's show, so nobody knew who he was. But I had watched Robin Hedman in tights. I watched his stand-up special with Kendall him softly. I was hyped. Like, I was so excited to see, like, this is the funniest dude alive, in my opinion, then. And so, like, I was like, I'm telling everybody on my floor, we gotta go. And then he went, and he crushed it, obviously. And it was just amazing. And then um, to open for him, they had a local comic from uh, Boston named Jimmy Dunn did uh, open for him. And uh, that whole thing was helped put on by the uh, student government. And so, you know, I wanted to do politics and everything like that. I got involved in student government. And later on that year, uh, in the spring, uh, I want to say April, we had a much smaller event where we had um, in a cafeteria on school, Jimmy Dunn was going to come in and host the show. And we're going to have another local comic called Tony V. He's going to come in and headline it. And part of it is they're going to have a um, student open mic. So if you want to go up and, and so I'm planning it. You know, I'm one of the people who's booking the stuff and putting it together and hanging up flyers. No intention You're whatsoever. You're a producer. Exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of it then, but yeah. And had no intention of going up. I'm just here to watch the show. And like a couple students sign up and they're telling like straight up like street jokes like knock knock and all this sort of stuff. And it's pretty bad. Uh, which, you know, I can't fault them. They'd never dumped it on stage before. What are you going to do? 
And I'm sitting there watching this train wreck of an open mic, uh, and you know, Jimmy and Tony were hilarious, but this open mic was just very much not. And I'm thinking to myself, I think that if I go up on stage and read into the microphone one of these stories about being awkward that I've written, that it might be funny in some way, or at least funnier than this knock joke. So you were writing before this. Yeah. You had started writing. Yeah, so I'd written, you know, I, I wrote these stories for the web, and I was like, you know, I'm sitting there with this open You had mic. a blog? Yeah, a blog, exactly, which no one read. I, I don't even know if I told people about it. Well, they know now. <laughs> exactly. uh, it was called the Rant Studio. The Rant Studio. Was it on WordPress? Uh, no, this is this is. Oh, this it, is before this WordPress. Is like, this was 2002. This is like 20 m. I like. I don't even think the hosting exists anymore. Um, but uh, I went up there and I just basically from memory, you know, told one of these stories and it worked. Like people laughed. Wow. And I, I was shocked and like and. I was really feeling it, like when I, when I got that attention and that you know the applause and like I had people up, coming up to me the next day like, dude, Wes, you saved comedy last night. And I was like, are you what? And like I know I'd never gotten any kind of attention like that before, and I was like, I'm hooked. I, we got to go do this again. And so I started. This is the very very end of my freshman year. Um, I didn't perform again until next year. Same show it was like a like a talent show. Same group put it on. And I bombed uh, horribly. Uh, sophomore slump. Sophomore slump. You, sh- yeah, you should have gotten over, <laughs> over with earlier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, my first show in the year, and I bombed horribly. And uh, but then I'm like, you know what? I I, I still want to keep doing this. And so I just, you know, you know, made some phone calls, which you'd actually do. I called the comedy club in the area comedy studio, like, well, how do you do this? And like, you know, uh, Rick Jenkins, uh, you know, the owner of the club, sent me a little prepared packet, uh, you know, about you know open mics and stuff like that. And I looked online. And I started going to this one club called um, Dick Doherty's Beantown Comedy Vault in the Theater District in Boston. It was a Sunday open mic that had been going for 20 years at that point, and it was a two-person bringer. And that place was my home for the vast majority of Sundays for, like, the next five, six years or something like that. So I wanted to do it so bad, and again, I had no friends. Like, you know, so I had friends from home who came up the first couple times and, like, burned through all of them. And then there would just be weeks where it was like it was a $7 ticket uh, uh, if you were there to see someone. And there were a bunch of weeks where it was Lisa was the name of the woman who run the door. I was just like, Lisa, here's $14. Can I just go on? I don't have anybody. And so you'd be like, fine. So like, yeah, I had paid like money to, like, you know, to perform uh, a lot and just bomb. And I was off. I mean, like, I know now that you need to expect to suck um, at, at comedy, especially of all the arts. Like stand-up is like, it's going to be a long, long, steep learning curve. So I sucked for years. Uh, but you know, the second year you suck a little bit less than the first year and so on and so on. And then, and then you get to a point, you're like, oh my God, I mostly didn't suck this year. And then like, you just keep on going in that trajectory. So that's all you can ask for. And we went to grad school, uh, stayed in Boston. I was at Emerson, uh, college for, um, uh, writing, creative writing, specifically with a poetry concentration. So what happened was I got out of college and, uh, I won't say failure to launch, but a, a little bit. I graduated, I had zero plan. It was the absence of a plan. Like, I hadn't prepared to do anything. Uh, and this is, had been a recurring theme in my early career. Like, I thought I was just going to make it. Like, that's how, in my head, and how unrealistic I was. I thought I was just going to be famous in a couple of years from stand-up. Like, that was really, honestly, and I'm sh- it's shameful to say. Like, it's so s- foolish, right? Um, but, like... <laughs> But that's what I thought. Uh, it's like the kid that starts the improv classes at UCB mm. and goes through all four levels, and they think 
SNL's like tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I thought I would just like, you know, keep doing comedy and then someone will be like, hey, you want to be on TV? Like, it's like that level of, of immaturity, right? So, uh, you know, I'd gone to school for film and political science and I had no job lined up. Like, you know, everybody around me is like, you know, they're applying for jobs in like January, February for like when you graduate in May, so you have something to go on. I hadn't done anything. Graduation came and went, and I had been in school for, you know, my entire life. I was eight, uh, 22 at that point. I'd been in school since I was five. I knew nothing else. And so like after six months of being out of school, I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'll take a, a workshop. And so I took a Brookline adult education. Like it was, yeah, it was like an adult education, community, not even community college. It's very loose uh, cash in the barrel, take this class sort of thing uh, at uh, Brookline High School. And it was a creative writing class for poetry. I'd never written poetry, never thought that I would want to, but I had been reading a little bit of it uh, as of late. And I went in and basically, long story short, after two semesters of like, you know, community college, uh, adult education, continu continuing education poetry workshop, I'm like, this is what I want to do now. And like, I'm going to be a great poet one day. And like, you know, Horrible. And like, I'm like, you know what would be a good idea? Let me go to school for three years and take on $60,000 in debt to get a master's of creative writing in poetry. You know that thing in America that everybody reads, like not at all. And like, that's what I did. And like, my mom, and like, my mom's like, you know, I took, you know, I have some loans uh, that I took for undergrad, but I will say again, mom came through, only child, spoiled rotten. She took care of most of college. And she was like, she was like, you know what? If you want to do this, you can. I am not paying for your grad school. And she, like, I remember specifically, she's like, do you understand what this means? Like these loans and this interest. And like, you know, I'm like, yeah. And like, again, the underlying thought here is like, well, I'm going to be on TV in like a couple of years. Once I get the show, this will that's like one paycheck for the, like, you know. Well, the poetry show. Wes has his poetry hour. Oh, well, I was still very, I wanted to pursue poetry. And that's I like that. I Wes has his for. poetry hour. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy because like I was still pursuing stand-up. So like, I'm, I'm like, we're going to get the poetry thing. That'll be a nice little detail. Get some street cab. But like, you're still doing movies in the stand-up comedy. And I look back at it now and I just. I, Wait, you were doing movies? No, that, that was the plan. Oh, okay, <laughs> that okay, was the okay. Plan. And I look back at it now and I, I have to both punch myself in the face and smile at how ridiculously immature and unaware and stupid and uninformed that I was. But it all turned out well in the end. Uh, yeah, I mean... Come on, it's not the end. It all turned out well later. Things worked out well. I mean, I'm happy for where I am today, but honestly, well, so just to give you the two-minute interpretation of, of grad school, I took on all this debt, and then I got out of it, uh, out of the you know, program, graduated. And what year is this now? This would have been 2011. And... Six months later, I started going to the Cantab Lounge in, um, in Cambridge, which is the Boston Poetry Slam team's, like, home base. You know, the, it's, like, the, the main thing of poetry in the region. And, like, you know, you just go in, they have a little open mic, and it's poetry. And, like, I went there, I'm like, oh, my God, like, this is everything I just paid 60K for. I could have just come here every Wednesday and got the same thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh, like, my God. And it was like, so if I, so, you know... I got I got some stuff out of out of grad school, um, namely a book. Um, it's probably the most direct thing out of it. Years after grad school, I get an email. I'm at work working a desk job, different job from BC at this point, and I get an email from a girl that I'd taken a poetry class with uh, years ago. She's like, "Hey Wes, I'm an editor at this company. We have this book project for a humor book. I know you do comedy. Would you be interested in you know potentially writing this book?" And I was like, yeah, tell me more. And, like, it was this book called Questions for Terrible People. It's about, like, you know, it's like a uh, Cards Against Humanity in book form is probably the best way to describe it. And, like, you know, this is the project. This is the kind of book we're looking for. You write it. 
And I'm like, okay. And a book contract literally just it fell on your lap. Fell on my lap. Like, I it's opened like, up a email. Do you know how many people <laughs> are going to be hearing this? They're going to be like, rah! They want to be reaching their hands through the headset and like say, choking you. In my life, there's like these two recurring things where like I make really stupid, ill-informed decisions and like suffer on one track. And then on another track, like this golden parachute, just craziness comes out of nowhere, and like I'm just set. And so like these two, thank God for the other one because wow. <laughs> and, like, so yeah, that that happened. So like yeah, had I not gone to Emerson for my grad um, program, I wouldn't have met a bunch of cool people. There were some relationships there and some friendships, so obviously that's very important. But professionally, the main thing to come out of it was that book. I got a you know, which is now Simon and Schuster. I'm a published author. That was really really helpful to have. That said, if I could do it all again, what I should have done is the day I graduated from BC, I should have, honestly, I should have just gotten whatever basic job, uh, desk job. I should have uh, done open mics and all the shows I could have in Boston for like two years. I should have then moved to New York City and just hit it hard, and that I think I'd be further along than I am now, but that's life. But, you know? but then again... <laughs> Things. I mean, I, I sometimes I hate when people say things happen for a reason because I want to punch <laughs> them in the face and be like, "No, it's not like that." But sometimes things have to happen to get you ready to go mm. forward. Do you, you understand what I mean? You gotta like go the, through, yeah, you yeah. Gotta, you got you got to make mistakes. And yeah, fuck yeah. Up and be right. like, I should have done that. Right. And then when a similar thing comes along next be, time, you're like, because when <laughs> the opportunity comes, you want to be prepared for it. Because I've heard this saying, that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. What people call luck is when your preparation meets the opportunity and, when, yep. and you can step up to the plate and do it. Exactly. But you were in a really good time in Boston in the early teens because Mass Mouth. I started doing stuff with, in, in 2011. Mm -hmm. HR brought me up and, and um, I, did, I started doing a bunch of storytelling there and they liked me. So they yeah. kept asking me back <laughs> and back and back and from... 2011, I was doing just about, I was the import for almost every storytelling show there. Yeah. Nora, Nora, man, Mass Mouth is just amazing. They really embraced me. Changed my life. Changed my life. Now they're even bigger. But yeah. that was that time where they had their fingers in like all these little pies. Now they have their fingers in big pies. Exactly. And yeah, it was like, it was small enough then where if you were talented and you're nice and like, you know, you just showed up to stuff, mm -hmm. a lot could happen for you. Like, yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I, I Mass Mouth was, I mean, that's how I got into the storytelling. So, like, I mean, I, of all the things I do, so I would consider myself first and foremost um, a stand-up comic. That is what I've been doing the longest. That is what I strive to, you know, I, that's what I think about when I think about if I was successful, what would it look like? It always revolves around that. But I will say that professionally, where I have advanced the most and what, you know, has been certainly the biggest financial cushion is definitely storytelling. And I got into that through Massmouth. Like, um, when I first started comedy, I was awful. Uh, and, you know, most people are. Uh, it's, you know, it takes a long time to sort of find out who you are. But I started out thinking that I wanted to be this ranty political comedian, like a George Carlin, especially Bill Hicks. Like, no, Bill Hicks was like my idol. And I started, you know, I would try to do that on stage, and it just didn't, it didn't work because it wasn't me. Like, you know, that's, I, I am political. I think about politics a lot, but, like, that's just not my style. And then gradually, after trial and error, years and years and years, I finally got to the point where I would just like sit in an open mic in my car beforehand and be like, let's today just talk about the most embarrassing thing that happened to you this week. Like, what was the most awkward thing? And I would go up and do that. And like, it worked out. It got to the point where I was basically just telling stories, um, you know, on stand-up stages and it was working. And then I booked, um, who did I book? 
uh, I was booking a variety show, and I'd seen him. Uh, Brendan Schneider? No, no, he he does uh, busted uh, L.A. Oh, Los Angeles oh, stories. Chris I'm, Corbell? No, no, Scott Schultz. Yes, Scott Schultz. Yeah, all right. If you listen to Scott, <laughs> sorry, just he'll he'll be shouted out. But like, I had booked him on a variety show that I was running, and like, I was like, oh, cool. And then like uh, a little bit later, he reached out to me and said, like, hey, Massmouth is doing this thing called Crack Up. It's a story slam, but they specifically want funny stories. And I was like, okay, I'll go and put my name on the hat. And it worked out, and I won that. It was like my first Story Slam attending. I won it, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And I was like, I want that again. And so to just get, I did, I did another crack up one, and then I just started doing more Mass Mouth. And you know, one thing led to another. And like, that's such a great organization. Like, you know, Nora. Uh, you know, uh, Teresa, Dan Dahari, uh, you know, and I, now Cheryl Hamilton. Cheryl Hamilton. So like, how yeah. how did um, the stories on the stage thing manifest for you, the hosting? Um, that just came out of uh, having been with Massmouth for so many years. So I had, when did that get popping off? Probably, I think it probably first started with like 2016. So by then, I mean, I had been performing with Massmouth for about four years. Uh, and like, you know, I'd gone to the Big Mouth Off finals, their season ending show a couple times. Um, you know, I'd won a bunch of slams with them and liked the people. And so I just had a lot of like performing experience and I'd been doing it a while. And when they came up for the show, uh, they're like, all right, we're going to need a host. We don't know if we're going to have two hosts or one host, whatever. And I just went up and did my thing and it worked out and I ended up uh, choosing uh, Teresa Koken and I. To be the dual host, and um, yeah, and you're still doing that to this day. I'm still doing that. When to this I, day. full disclosure, when I was at Stories for the Stage, um, you interviewed me, so I kind of feel like we are coming full circle here. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, this is. I'm happy that this is a much more expansive and freeform conversation. We didn't get to talk nearly as long for Stories no. on the Stage, but that was a great conversation yeah. and a great evening of storytelling. It was an excellent evening of storytelling. So what? made you decide to move to New York. And I also want to get in here that you are a Jeopardy! champion. Correct, yeah. Is that what got you to move to New York? It certainly helped. Uh, so, uh, moving, you know, being a Boston comic, you are going to hit a ceiling. There's really only, I guess, three avenues. If you've been doing comedy in Boston long enough, you eventually you'll quit. Uh, which, if you get in, if you're in there for at least four or five years, that becomes in, increasingly more rare the longer you do it. Or you become like you know a regional middler. You, know, you can do very well for yourself, um, and there's some very very hilarious guys who do that. Um, and then the other thing uh, would be to move, and you really only have two options: uh, New York or LA. And so um, I was really hesitant to move to New York because I thought that I wanted to establish myself so I wouldn't have to start over. Um, but if I'm being honest, it was a lot of fear. Um, it was comfortable at home. Well, you seem to be a really cautious guy, though. I mean, yeah. talking to you and noticing how long you will stay in a situation <laughs> yeah. because you get comfortable mm -hmm. there and, like, you seem to be unsure of how or where to move to the next step. And yeah. now, having gathered this about your personality, what made you decide that you were going to go on Jeopardy and crush it? I've loved the show forever. Jeopardy predates comedy or performance or anything like that. I've watched that show um, since I was probably 13, 14. I, I actually went to audition for Teen Jeopardy, the teen tournament, back when I was like uh, 15. Didn't make it. Um, but like, yeah, I, that's how long I've loved Jeopardy. I loved, I did Quiz Bowl in middle school, high school, college, you know, the whole thing. I loved trivia. Uh, so it had been a background sort of desire. Like, one day it'd be great to be on Jeopardy for 20 years. And then... I had put in for the online test like the year before, so give you some numbers. 
Every year, Jeopardy says, yo, we're going to have an online test. Tell us if you want to take it. And about 300,000 people say, I would like to take that test. And of those 300,000, 70,000 people are allowed to take the test. And of those 70,000, 2,500 are invited to go audition live. And of those 2,500, about 400 people per year get to be on Jeopardy. And um, I, you know, in this would have been March of 2017, Earlier than that, I said I would like to take the test. And then I took the test in March or May of 2017 and didn't hear anything because uh, they don't tell you how you did. You know, there's no score. But I knew from keeping track uh, how I did. Uh, and I got an email in October 2017 saying, hey, we'd like to invite you to come audition. I'm like, amazing. And um, spent, you know, a full month prepping for that, like, you know, hours a day, map study, watching old episodes. Went in for the... Um, uh, the live audition in uh, November 2017. I thought I did very, very well. Again, they tell you nothing. Wow. Yeah, they tell you nothing. Uh, you go in on, you go in for the live audition and you uh, take another test, like a 50-question pra- uh, practice test, uh, basically to make sure you weren't cheating on the online test. Then you have a little bit of a mock game. Uh, when, you know, you, you know, do you know how to play Jeopardy? All this sort of stuff. And then they add you a little interview, and then that's it. And they tell everybody, thanks for coming. You all did great today. You should be happy that you made it this far. If you hear from us, it will be sometime in the next 18 months. And then you just go home and wait 18 months for a phone call that might never come. And so... And the phone call came for you. It came, and I was... I left... And this is in 2018 now. Yes, this is in 20. So I got the phone call in January 2018, and the audition had been in November 2017. And I left that audition... You know, I'm my own harshest critic. You know, when I bomb, I tell myself, you just bombed. That was the worst thing ever, you know. And when I left that audition, I thought to myself, I don't think I could have acquitted myself better in that audition than I, than I did. I think I did the best job I possibly could. So um, I prepared. I spent the next two months studying as if I was going to be on I didn't let up. I went deeper into it. Like, I was at the point where I was doing five hours of prep a day. And I got the call telling me that I was going to go on in January. We, rec- we recorded the episodes in March. And then... Um, they aired in June, I think? July. July. Uh, July, July 9th. Yeah. So I won three days. And, and tell uh, people how much you won. Uh, $53,196. And we're not telling anybody where you live. <laughs> I'm sure that money is invested quite well. Uh, Amex and the government got a lot of that. So <laughs> Did that windfall allow you to mentally say, you know what, let me just do this and move? Was yeah, that, the, was, was that was the tipping point, kind far of? Away. Yeah, I mean, I knew that I, w- I was for sure going to move to New York at some point in the next few years. Like, it had just gone on too long. I and and to then Jeopardy it. just kicked your ass out the damn door. <laughs> Jeopardy made it easy. Like, it, it was weird because I'd gotten to a point where I'd been doing comedy and storytelling for, like, you know, 12 years. I had put out a book. I hosted a national TV show. Uh, you know, I was getting really good gigs in um, Boston. You know, my name was out there to a certain extent, but I still had a full-time day job and no representation. I'm like, when is this? And, like, you know, I never want to get in that mindset where you think you're owed because that's a very toxic place to be. Yes. But I was just like, what else can I do? And I just knew that it was going to New York. And um, the Jeopardy thing, like, so we filmed in March. Episodes don't air until July. I know that I have this money coming, but it won't come for, like, uh, three months after air. And you still have to have your day job. And there's nothing There's nothing wrong with that. No shame. Yeah, and after all those things, I worked the door for this long. I worked at Boston College for this long. I lived in Boston for, for, for this long. After everything where I finally just get out of the, the rut and make the change, I, know, I realized immediately that I should have done it years before. 
And I tell myself each time, but I keep doing it. So, like, next I'm really on the lookout in my life right now mm. for getting locked into something you got to like break the pattern. Exactly, exactly. So, I think that this is the perfect time to break this little interview <laughs> pattern. A little pescado tells me that you have a story or something of the sort to share with us. I do, yeah. Uh, I will tell you of how a big part of Jeopardy and my success on it uh, came, came to pass. I think people might find this interesting. And, um, yeah, so, Jeopardy. I had watched the show forever. I felt good about my knowledge. I had studied for five months. Um, and I was really, really into it because the stakes were so high. I mean, like, the, what if you fail? Like, you know, like, I was just, you know, the best case scenario in my head was I'd win 10, 12, 13 games, make half a million dollars, become, like, a minor national celebrity, go on Fallon. Like, you know, because that happens when people go on, like, crazy runs like that. And I knew that was unlikely. Uh, the worst case scenario would be that I didn't have enough money to compete in Final Jeopardy, and I just like kill myself because like that that I couldn't handle that. So I was like, let's try to win a couple here and have a good run. And I did all the prep I could, knowledge and everything like that. And we get into the studio, and it's two days. So they told me to get there on a Tuesday. Jeopardy only tapes Tuesday and Wednesday, five episodes a day. So every you know, if someone wins on a Monday and wins all week, then they did all that stuff all on uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, so uh, we get there, and I am feeling confident. I have prepped for five months. I'm good at. I've watched the show for 20 years. I know trivia. I had taken a 30-day meditation course for, with an app on like a competition just to get like in my head in the game. And I was like, I'm walking in there. I'm like, I am Michael Jordan. I am Muhammad Ali. We've got this. All right. And I didn't go on there to to win, you know, to you know, just to be on Jeopardy. It's really nice, so like you know, or even just oh, one game would be great. I went in there to kill people. Like I wanted to win like five, ten, fifty. That was in my mindset. And we get there, and I'm feeling strong. I'm eager to play. I'm pumped up. And they do a little uh, bit of practice. Uh, so they let everybody go up there, um, you know, and get a couple of questions on the buzzer. And they basically just want to, you know, they really want you to get like two in a row just so like, you know, they know that it's, um, it's, it's, you know, you can feel comfortable playing. And when I got up there feeling so confident, the one thing that you cannot practice at home is the buzzer. Like you just, it's, it's, I would play standing up with a ballpoint pen in front of a music stand, not the same. You can't get it because what people don't realize about the, the Jeopardy system is that it's all, the buzzer is everything on that show. If you made it that far, you were good at trivia. Most of the contestants know most of the answers most of the time. So essentially what it's all about is who gets it on first. And what happens is Alex is reading a clue. And you can't see this at home, but uh, on the side of the board, there is a set of lights. And Alex reads a clue, and then a human being, this person's sole job that day, is to press a button when they feel that Alex has finished reading the clue. And they press that button that arms the system. And when that, ha that happens, the lights go on, and your buzzer becomes active, and then you can buzz in. However, if you buzz in before the, uh, that button is pressed, you get locked out for a quarter of a second, which is an eternity in Jeopardy time. So what will happen is, um, and they tell you in the, in the uh, you know, audition, the taping, if you wait to see the lights, you will fail. You need to like, just get into like, this zone, right? So it's a very like, sort of mystical thing because you can't time it. It's a human being pressing this button to arm the system. And what a lot of people don't realize is that was Ken Jennings' superpower, like the guy who won like 74 games in a row. 
he was amazing at trivia. Obviously, he knew his stuff. But the biggest thing for him, his greatest talent, was he had a sort of like supernatural attunement with Alex's voice where he just knew always when the buzz in, he was able to get in um, the first ring most of the time. And that was the, the foundation of his success. Um, so I know all this intellectually going in. But when we get up there, I just, I just don't have it. Like, I, I can't, for the life of me, I can't, on these practice rounds, I can't get in. And my confidence is shattering. Like, it's it just like... It's just like stand-up, or I imagine any performing thing. Like, when you go up, you need to know that you're going to do well. Like, not arrogance, but confidence. Like, you just have to know in your heart, I have done all the prep, I am ready to go, I know what I need to do, I'm going to execute. You know, it's not a arrogance, it's just like, a, you know, a zone in. And I had that walking in that day, and it, it was evaporated entirely by the time that that, um, that session ended. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, if I go up now, if I get called up to go, like, I'm going to fail. Like, I'm going to, like, bomb, crash and burn. Not just not win, but do horribly. And uh, there's 12 of us there that day. They're going to use all but two of us. And then the next, the two people come back the next day. And I'm just, like, sitting there, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I, please don't go up first. Maybe I can, like, watch and learn a little bit. And I don't get called the first game out of the five. Second game goes by, I still don't get called. Third game that goes by, I still don't get called. I'm like, oh, my God, this could be my break. My confidence is shattered right now, but if I can somehow be one of those two people that does not have to go today, I can go home, sleep on it, do all the, you know, look up buzzer strategy, get in a different mental space, and come back and execute tomorrow. And the greatest stroke of luck that ever happened to me is I was one of those two people. I did not have to compete that day. So I go home or to the hotel, and I sit there just looking at the wall, like, what are we going to do? I don't know what. You get 15 hours to figure this shit out. Just do something. And I Googled, you know, buzzer strategy, and I'd seen a lot of this stuff before because I had done the prep work, but I just got deep in the weeds and, like, Jeopardy message boards and, like, looking. And two things came to, um, saw that I came to, like, one of them was people saying, close your eyes. So basically just remember the last word of the clue and, uh, and wait till Alex says it and then buzz and then don't look. And then just two or three people and all the hundreds of messages that I went through, I saw this one, uh, I'm grasping at straws here. They said, try your other hand. I'm right-handed. They said, like, try your non-dominant hand. I'm like, whatever, we'll give it a try. So the next day I go in, and I'm a little bit more at peace. I'm like, I'm like, I might fail, but we'll see. I go up there to the podium, another practice session. First practice session, I'm horrible again. I try the eyes closed things that work a little bit, but, like, not that much. Second practice session, I go up again. And this time I just try. I, like, try left hand, and, oh, my God, it made... It was everything. It was the, the. It was everything. Everything that I was able to do on that show came from switching the buzzer in my left hand. All of a sudden, from not being able to uh, buzz in barely at all, I'm just crushing it. And if I had to guess, I think that I'm so fast because my right hand is my dominant hand. And the problem I was encountering was that I was buzzing in too early and getting locked out. I think the physical delay of my left hand being slower it was just enough to allow me to, to do that. And so, yeah, if you want to know what I was doing the day, the night, the 4 o'clock in the morning before I went on Jeopardy, it was searching through message boards and you know, deciding, yeah, put it in your left hand, and that, that solved everything. That is cray. Oh, my God. I couldn't, I don't think I've ever in my life met anyone who preps as seriously as you. I just applaud and, and, and just, I'm in awe of you. You did a 30-day meditation? Oh, my God. On competition. Yeah. yeah. And, and, then, and, like, just the fact that there's such a thing as buzzer strategy just, like, blows my mind. <laughs> but it worked. You won. Yay. Yeah. And now you're here in New York. So where can people find information about you 
and your upcoming projects? Yeah, best place to start would just be my website, uh, westhazard.com. That's W-E-S, hazard like danger.com. I'm at West Hazard on all the social media, Twitter, Instagram. Um, I have a mailing list I'm really proud of. Um, it's a mailing list where, you know, it's about monthly. Uh, and yes, there are all my, you know, app updates and stuff that I've made and come see me and all that sort of stuff. But what I really like about the website, uh, rather the mailing list, is that it is... Um, it is a thing where I include stuff that I've been reading and watching and seeing that I want to share. So people really find some cool content. And in February, I'll be doing um, another round of my Black History Repeats Itself, which is a social media project I've done for Black History Month for the last two years. Uh, if you want to find out more about it, you can go to blackhistoryrepeatsitself.com. That is just fantastic. I have just been enthralled by you, Wes. <laughs> So I ask this question of everyone when we get to the end of our time together. So if you had a word of encouragement or advice for a young person who does want, who knows that they have something creative inside of them, but due to the constraints of their upbringing, environment, or circumstances, finds that they're stymied or blocked or they're paralyzed with fear, mm. what would you tell this child or person? I would say you have to... For you, you have to make sure that you are having fun. And I mean that in a broad sense. Art is hard work. Making a living through art is even harder. There are going to be many, many things that you have to do and travel and you know, people you have to meet that are not fun. That's not what I mean. Uh, you, know, you, you can't escape the hard work of, of, of that. But you should be doing it in a way like, is this something that I feel, am I being forced to do this? You know, does it... Would I get out of bed for no money to do this? Like that's a you know important thing. Uh, but and secondly, though, for that's for you, for the world at large, and how they receive your art. I would just say, do you have a point? If you want to have a TV show one day, why? It can't just be because I want to be on TV. It's like, what are you bringing to the table? What is the art that you are making? going to bring to other people in the world at large. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to, you know, be crazy transformative or famous or anything like that. But if people digest what you're putting out there, how are they going to change and to what end? Ask yourself that. That sounds so wise. I'm going to start adopting some of those principles mm -hmm. immediately. Thank you so much for being on Fish Out of Agua, Wes. Thank you Wes. so much. I had a blast. I wish we could talk more, but this has been fantastic. Thank hug you. Hug in the air. Yeah. We always <laughs> end with a hug on the air. Anticipation arose as time froze. I stared off the stage with.
with my eyes closed and dove into the deep cosmos. The impact pushed back the first five rows. But before the raw live shows, I remember eyes a little snot nose, rocking gazelle, guy goes and eyes I close. Learning the ropes of ghetto survival. People not the situation I had to slide through. Had to watch my back, my front, plus my size too. When it came to getting mine, I ain't trying to argue. Sometimes I wouldn't have made it if it wasn't for you. Hip hop, you the love of my life, and that's true. And that's when true. I was handling the shit I had to do, it was all for it you. All from the door for you. Speak through your getting paper on tour for you. From the start, thought was down by law for you. Used to hit up every corner store war for you. We ripped shit and kept it hardcore for you. I remember late nights, steady rocking the mic. Hip hop, you the love of my life. So tell the people like that, y'all. And it sounds so nice. Hip hop, you the love of my life. We about to take it to the top. I was speaking to my guy Regan. I see was desperately seeking to organize enough confusion. Using no protection. Told on resurrection. Caught in the hype Williams and lost her direction. Getting eight in sections where I wouldn't eat. Uh, under the counter love, so silently I treat her. Her daddy a beater. Eyes off her. In the mix on tape, niggas had her in the buck. When we touch, it was more than just a fuck. The police in her, I found peace. Like, like Malcolm in the East. Seen her on the streets of New York. Tricking off, tried to make a hit with her. But my dick went soft. Moving weight, losing weight. Not picky with who she choose to date. Too confused to hate. With her struggle, I relate close to 30. Most of the niggas she know is dirty. Having more babies than Lauren. She started showing early. As of late, I realized... But this is a fate or destiny to bring the best to me. It's like God is testing me. In retrospect, I see she brought life and death to me. Peace to us collectively. Live and direct when we perform. It's just coffee shop chicks and white dudes. Over her, I got into it with that nigga Ice Cube. Now the fight move to in life, making the right moves. Besides God and family, you my life's true. Like that, y'all. Like that, y'all. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard Act 2, The Love of My Life, by The Roots, from their Brown Sugar album in 1999. 
And yeah, it seems that Wes Hazard has had a lot of act twos, threes, and fours in his life, as do most of us. But now that he's in New York, go check him out. One announcement to make, did you know that Radio Free Brooklyn is launching a program called the RFB Teen Squad, where teens in Brooklyn will learn media skills and practices and broadcast their own show live. Classes begin on January 29th. To find out more, just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash Teen Squad. Well, kids, that's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. We're going to close with the last of Wes's song picks, and it's by Black Sabbath. Oh, my God. One of my fave bands picked by one of my fave new people. You're going to hear Planet Caravan from their Paranoid album back in 1970. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Yeah.